And we're live with our 181st episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, hey everyone, how's it going? Uh, welcome back to another episode. Uh, happy to be kind of back in the saddle after a couple of weeks, um, mostly due to you know what do they call it, hacker summer camp and way too much time spent in las vegas um <laughs> courtesy of defcon and trainings and black cat and all the things so i'm finally starting to feel normal again uh after you know trying to be social i guess right ken right, you know I, I'm, you know spending some well, time were, out there yeah you by the time I got there, I got there on Sunday after all the festivities. You got there the Tuesday before that. So yep. you'd already been there for quite some time by the time I saw you. And like even the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I spent time there. Like I was definitely ready to leave Tuesday night. I was like, okay, it's fine. You know, it's, it's cool. Like I, I can yeah. go home. Uh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. you had more days than that. So that's why I'm, dang, that's like rough. <laughs> that's rough. rough yes i i would encourage people to get off strip right like if they are in vegas for that long right go do something normal i it, and to be fair right like some of the activities that go on with defcon nowadays encourage that a little bit more it's not just all about being on the strip and doing all the crazy stuff that's involved with that but they have things like the toxic barbecue they've got you know there's a bunch of guys that get up you know and do a 5k run every morning while they're there. So there are, you know, a group of hackers, I should say. Um, and so there's other things that are happening besides just the drinking and carousing and whatever that, that goes on. And, and, and actually, you know, that's kind of where we wanted to start today was a, you know, a summary of DEF CON. I wish I had more like, Hey, this is the research I actually saw while I was there. Um, but being involved with Hacker Tracker, helping do the goon stuff, all the scheduling. Um, there was a bunch of stuff that I, you know, I definitely wanted to get to, but just didn't happen because of the because of, because of other constraints, right? Constraints on my time, and you know, being involved I, I with think that's, like, visiting other villages, right? I think well, that's worth noting if you if you you know break down like I think it'd be helpful for you to break down like what did your schedule look like around just the Hacker Tracker bit. And what was the involvement, you know, like, cause yeah, there's several people involved, but I know you're, uh, you know, you kind of led this from the beginning. So my, you know, my, yeah, I think it'd be helpful to hear sort of what your schedule looked like and things like that. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's pretty interesting because leading up to the con um, and uh, they do recognize this, right. Like from a DEF CON leadership perspective, but um, leading up to the con, I, you know, my own personal time put into like updates, scheduling, and even with people helping out, um, I'm at least a couple of weeks worth of effort into it, right? If not more than that. Um, I have a hard time tracking that because we're, we are making updates year round, but leading up to DEF CON, since it's kind of the premier conference in the application, we do, I mean, so many updates and pushes and trying to get new features out and stuff that'll make attendees' lives better and able to track the conference. Um, so, I mean, there's a good couple weeks of like focused development effort that go into that um, before the conference and the lead up. And then as the villages and all the different events start to load their schedules out, we're trying to wrangle that as well and changes. 
Um, and most of those villages don't actually solidify their schedule until, you know, maybe a week before the conference. So, you know, like we're putting in quite a bit of time just trying to wrangle that. And, you know, big shout out to Drew, um, a null value, uh, if you see him on Twitter or whatever else, who's who's kind of become our data wrangler and uh, touch point for a lot of the um, of the the scheduling stuff as it comes in, right? Dealing with the village leads and everything else like that. It was a huge pain point a few years ago. And then he's come in and made it a lot smoother on our end. But that being said, there's still, you know, uh, advice. Um, Chris, who does the Android app, Whitney's not really involved as much in there anymore. Um, and then also um, Caleb, who's a listener, right? Um, I should say uh, derail. I think is his handle now, but um, Caleb, who's doing, who's done quite a bit on the, he's helped me out on the iOS side, but he did the web, like the info.defcon.org, the website as well. Um, and so like, that's all leading up to the conference. During the conference, we were basically splitting shifts, maintaining and watching the Discord channel as well, trying to handle the info scheduling there. Um, the info team the DEFCON info team that, that runs the info booths, the hacker tracker teams a part of um, like, we're trying to cover like all the attendees questions during the conference, um, whether that is, you know, the live portion in person or online, the discord channel, and they just didn't have enough people. So we got pulled into helping cover the discord channel this year, uh, which meant that we were, you know, we were running basically, you know, two shifts during the day, two of us covering the, Discord channel, scheduling updates, whatever else was coming in, and then, um, you know, cruising between all the different, you know, different locations to see how the app was acting. Um, There wasn't, you know, yeah. And that started, I mean, for me, that started at 8 a.m. every day, uh, making (laughs) sure the stuff was set up, which, you know, seems contrary to Vegas completely, right? But it was, right? Like 8 a.m. to about 2 p.m., that's what me and Caleb were doing was hanging out, trying to like keep that all straight, answer questions, pointing people in the right direction to whatever streams or, you know, playing floaters on some of the info, like the booth locations as well. And yeah, it, it, it ended up being quite a bit. Right. Um, which is why I didn't get to anything. Um, yeah. by the time, by the time that Sunday hits and it starts to slow down, I mean, Saturday afternoon it does too. But then you loop in, hey, I'm trying to catch a couple of talks or I want to go to an event at night. Um, And, you know, you're doing like the in-person hallway con, which is really where I found find DEF CON valuable or visiting like the different villages. That becomes more of a um, like it's just difficult to, to, to harness both of those and then remember everything that's going on. So, yeah. 8 a.m. is a tough ask in Vegas. It, um, it is. I mean, we start we started teaching at 8 a.m. too on Monday and Tuesday. So well, did we? Know. But yeah, no, did we did. We? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's the start time. <laughs> um, just a little inside joke there. Uh, <laughs> for what's interesting too is like I, I like it's funny you know when you talk about the size and the scope of DefCon. This felt. I mean, I don't know what you're. I mean, I know kind of what your thoughts are, but I'd be interested for you to share that with others because um, I was surprised. Uh, it felt to me like, yeah, very normal um, in yeah. terms of the amount of people there. Yeah, it was very normal, right? Like, I, I mean, honestly, it felt like 2018, 2019, uh, large, you know, several different hotels, locations, 
Um, I know a lot of people didn't make it in person last year um, and it was much quieter and smaller. Um, just, you know, people's risk tolerance was a lot lower this year. It, did, it definitely felt like everybody's like, all right, we're back. Um, and I, I know we were still missing some people. I expect it to grow even more next year. But yeah, I, I don't remember what the final numbers were, but I'm sure we were in the, you know, 25,000 range again, um, which was yeah, very I, similar to 2018, 2019. I've heard 30,000 thrown around a lot. So, <laughs> and like, even just, you know, the me getting in Sunday morning while people were kind of still shuffling out, checking out. Um, some people were flying out later that night. So there was still a decent amount of people. I could tell even just within the link where we were at, um, there was a huge difference between Sunday morning and Monday morning and Monday, you know, like it, once everybody had cleared out, it was like, yeah, it was a, it was vastly different in terms of the amount of people that were, were walking around. So it was, uh, just from that alone, I could tell there was a significant attendance, you know, but yep. you were actually there. So you got to see it firsthand. Yeah. Oh, well, and I mean, that was the interesting thing because we're tracking stats on the application as well. Right. Um, right. And I mean, you know, based on, I mean, we had about 12,000 people that actually installed the application, you know, pretty evenly split between Android and iOS. Um, and then they were using the, the, um, the web version as well. So we got up to about 20,000 total users. Um, peaked out on Saturday, which is the height of the conference, right? Like Saturday morning as everybody's doing stuff, um, which is, I, I mean, it's great, right? Like, so, yeah. Well, didn't you say that there was an increase in iOS usage this year over the previous years? Like that's actually the balance has shifted a bit. Yeah, it has. I Like this was the first year that we had higher iOS numbers than Android numbers. Um, I don't know if people are just more comfortable with that or if we're, you know, we're getting away from this idea that, you know, Android is, you know, inherently like more open or secure than iOS. I like, you know, it goes back and forth in the, in the hacker space, as far as, you know, who thinks what, and you know, what the security of that is or what people are comfortable with using. Um, so I, I mean, and, and to be fair as well, um, like the past years, I, you know, we've tracked users a little differently. I haven't had as many, um, uh, in, I haven't had as much insight into the iOS usage. And so we did increase some of that telemetry, you know, it's becoming more of a tracker app, right? I, I should say, no, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you still don't. Whoa now. Whoa it's now. Still, whoa, whoa, slow down. It's all still completely anonymous. Yeah. You have your own. You check out this code. <laughs> I do. That could lead us to another discussion that we're going to have here shortly. Um, no, I don't. I actually like, uh, legitimately ripped that out this last year. We used to do an in-app browser and I pulled oh, it right. out because it's a pain. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Right. Like from a, from an overall attendee experience, I think this year went really well. Um, some of the villages, uh, have grown quite a bit and see like, like the AppSec village specifically had a lot of good talks and a lot of good buzz about it. It needs a bigger space just given that like they're trying to do CTFs and in-app in workshops and speakers all at the same time. There were some really interesting talks on, I mean, there was a couple on the like crypto space in there, but there was the, the one, um, and I should pull this up. I don't have it at my, at my fingertips right now, but there was a talk on 
um, a guy going in through GitHub and patching vulnerabilities at scale, right? Like looking at open source applications, looking for vulnerabilities exist in those app mm -hmm. open source application and actually using, um, you know, just techniques to like similar to what Dependabot would do, but just for custom code as well, right? Um, oh, right. It was an interesting, interesting like take on, hey, we're trying to secure things. Let's really try and secure things and do, a, you know, a bunch of pull requests for you know, in-app fixes for easy things. Um, which was a, a rather clever way to go about it, you know, in my opinion. Um, let's see what else was, I, they had like the, um, what, what is it? It was an airplane village, right? But, um, I can't remember what they called it right now. It, it's been, you know, it's been a week and my brain is, is, has been mush since then. So, um, but you know, Airplanes were there, like the ICS stuff was really cool, like the internet, you know, the, the massive control systems. IoT is always great. Um, Snow Fensive, we're actually running the new um, social engineering village or whatever they're calling it, social engineering community. Um, I mean, it's just, it's like, it's honestly like 15 different conference all, conferences all running at the same time. Um, and that's usually my recommendation. And people are come up, come up and say, hey, well, what should I go see? Um, I'm always like, uh, you pick a village and you go, right? Like uh, the, yeah. typically the, the main talks are recorded. Eventually they're going to be pushed out on YouTube or Twitch or whatever else. Um, but a lot of that goes on as far as the CTFs, the villages, um, doesn't get recorded. You may see some blog posts come about it, out about it. People talk about it, but it's traditionally not recorded. And yeah, and so you don't get quite the same experience if you're trying to view it online. That's all. So you can go back for the other ones, but a lot of that you have to experience in person. Yeah. So the so, villages in person yeah. talks secondary. You can check those out later kind of thing. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Especially, especially from a weight perspective, right? Like you don't want to wait in line for oh, a lot yeah. of those. Um, some of the big ones that maybe, you know, maybe, maybe fun to experience live, um, you know, like James Kettle or whoever else, right? Like if you've never yeah. seen him live, it'd be fun to go see. Um, but the villages and the CTFs, those, that stuff doesn't run or the sky talks specifically, those are, those have always been, hey, there's no recording. There's no like kind of record of what's going on with the Sky Talk. So that's almost kind of a like village vibe as well. Anyway, nice. yeah, yeah. Um, it was good. I like it was a good time this year. Yeah, it's nice for it to uh, to feel, uh, yeah, like we're kind of back in the swing of things. It was from a training perspective, I thought it was really fun. We had a lot of students, a lot of students. Uh, yeah. I think we we were surprised because we, we we had our original numbers and we showed up and there was definitely a decent bit more than and it was already a lot of students and then we got there and it was like oh there's even more students we filled up that room it was awesome um, but yeah like I think from because that's the only perspective I have is from the training side of things I thought it was uh, yeah the students were really I think one thing that was interesting in terms of the student the students composition is that typically when we do this training, it's oftentimes attached to like either an application security style conference or a product security conference. And yeah. this was DEF CON. So this is, you know, people with much more diverse uh, set of skills than just, you know, AppSec or product, product security type 
uh, skills and background. So what was, I guess, a bit interesting was, you know, having folks go through this who, you know, again, they're, they're, we're talking people that had backgrounds more around network security, pen testing, red teaming, stuff like that. And um, to see <clears throat> that it still worked, right? But that <clears throat> there were deeper explanations required in some areas. Um, and uh, just, a, I, I guess, just, yeah, probably that would be the one thing. We probably had to, to, to do a little bit more explaining in, in some areas that we would normally, you know, kind of gloss over. But I think it was uh, not gloss over, but, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't spend a ton of time there. And I think that it was actually really useful from not only the student's perspective, but from my own perspective to like, when you're, when, when people ask questions and you have to like really explain things in depth that you're used to just kind of, it's, it's helpful, I think, to, to really like make you, make you think through all of that um, and how you respond. And so I thought it was pretty cool. Our students were definitely very engaged. I think the, the uh, uh, readouts at the end where they go through and show us that they had you know, in the second half of that day, for those who don't know, the second day, ha second half of the second day, we have them do this against real apps, open source apps. Um, and then they read out uh, as a team what they, you know, showing us that they followed the process and all that stuff. And it was really, it was a really good uh, readout, uh, set of readouts. It was really comprehensive in the reviews they did. That one team that chose Ruby on Rails, even though they had no Ruby or Rails experience, yet still somehow picked that thing apart. That was really exciting. So overall, I, I don't know, from, from the training thing, like I think the training went, obviously a couple lessons learned for the DEF CON folks giving training, but these are minor things that are very easy to tweak and and, you know, shore up um, for next year, but overall, you know, very happy. So anyways, that that's my take on the DEF CON training side, which is the only perspective, like I said, that I obviously do have here. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it felt good. It was a good first effort from the DEF CON training's perspective, right? Where they they hadn't run it before. Um, I mean, honestly, like I was like, you know, from our perspective, happy with the attendance, happy with the, um, the, yeah, uh, the the mix of people that were in the course, um, the discussions that we had, and, you know, there's always, you know, improvements that can be made from our side, from their side, from, you know, DEF CON side. Um, and that, that'll fix, you know, fix itself over time as they become more used to it. Um, I'm trying to think, right? Still did a pretty good job, though, overall, you know, like it's mm -hmm. a lot to coordinate. And that's a huge, huge event. So, uh, yep. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it sounds like they will continue to do those. They're probably going to introduce some more. So watch out for that. Um, if you're interested in the DEF CON trainings, it did feel a little bit more approachable. It wasn't as huge as some of the other big training events that are out there. Um, yeah. Um, outside of that, I did drop the link in uh, for the DevSlop talk related to fixing vulnerabilities at scale. Um, give that a listen. It looks like it is... Um, What's his bucket? Uh, what's his name? Jonathan. Jonathan Lightshoe. Lightshoe. You would know how to say that better than I would. Lightshoe. Yep. For those that don't know, and I'm assuming that's a German name. It looks German it to is. me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seth speaks German fluently. So, uh, yeah. Like, you know. Oh, speaking of which, right? Like I didn't announce it at the beginning. We are going to be giving our course at DeepSec in Vienna in November. 
So if you are a European listener, I know we've had a few people to asking when we're going to get back over to give the course. This is going to be your opportunity to do that, at least within the next couple of months. Um, if there's, um, yeah, if there's other interest, like there may be the opportunity as well to, you know, give a, you know, a private course that Ken and I do while we're there. Um, if there's something else that pops up, but, you know, from a public course perspective, uh, this, th it will be available. Um, I don't think it's up on the website yet at DeepSec. Um, hmm. But as soon as it is, we'll tweet out about it. <laughs> as soon as I send them my bio, I forgot about that. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, make they, do, they that. do have the bio. It's, it was in the proposal. So we'll, we'll figure oh, okay. out where that's at. You know, both of us need to, yeah, um, to drop that in to make sure that it actually gets. Uh, oh, Aaron dropping here. It is actually listed. Sweet. Um, it has my bio on there, but not yours. <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> uh, awesome. But let me see. Yeah. Did Aaron drop the link in there for us? Perfect. Yeah, see. Oh, sweet. So, yep. He's right. Aaron, Aaron is correct. We'll, we'll get your bio on there, Ken. You're, you're just secondary. It's all me, right? That's how it was. Hey, I'm good with that. That's fine. So no, it's, yeah. it's all my ego, right? That needs to feed this. No. <laughs> they, they asked for my bio. I just forgot to get to it, to be honest. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure we owe them like headshots and stuff like that, too. I think I just pointed them at the Absolute AppSec website and said, they're on there somewhere. You can find us. We're pretty public. So. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, not being yeah. lazy, but it's just yeah, it's you know, got a lot going on. Um, well, cool. yeah, we found out we found out that during DefCon, and so it's been kind of secondary, but it, it'll pop up. And like I said, uh, let us know if you're going to be there. We'd love to hook up and maybe do like a you know absolute AppSec evening. I mean, that'll be early November. I'm super excited to get back to you know German speaking countries. Um, obviously, like Ken said, because I you know I did live there for a couple of years, so. We can go you know, have a beer and Sprechball, right? Anyway. You're you're our uh, tour guide, whether you like it or not. So <laughs> Whether I like it or not. I get to do all the translating. Because yes, I'm bringing that's... the family for this one for sure. So, yep. yeah. Cool. Um, do you want to get into our first article? We kind of hinted at the in-app browser bits there, but I figured maybe we yes. discuss it more fully yeah, do that um and i do want to i want to actually go to kraus um the researcher that posted that we'll, we'll drop that first right um so this felix kraus um actually took a look at multiple different mobile apps um and when you're doing um, mobile development uh there you have certain options when you when it comes to in-app browsing right um, and i deal with this in hacker tracker so i'm intimately familiar with actually trying to 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 put this sort of thing together right um, but basically what happens is when a user clicks a link you have a choice on whether or not to spawn safari or chrome or whatever you know preferred browser they have or to open that link locally using webkit and ios um, I'm not sure what they call it on Android, right? Like I'm not a big Android dev right now, but um, you have the option of opening it up within your own basically web browser that you create. And this has always been an issue with mobile applications. If we go back to the initial ones, um, like I, I've written this up in reports before that you know people try to render HTML content using the in-app browser 
um, and don't realize that people can browse away from the link that was provided to them. Now, what Krause here is, has figured out or seen is, or Felix, however he wants to be referenced, right? Like what he saw as he analyzed, uh, you know, if we look at that, it was TikTok, what other, what were the other apps? Instagram, yeah, Messenger, Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. TikTok, Instagram, them... Facebook, Messenger, Facebook, Amazon, Snapchat, and Robinhood. Okay. So, I mean, there's a few of them that are there that he, he's looked at. Obviously, any application has the option to do this. But when you click on a link in TikTok or in Instagram, um, TikTok, by default, would not allow you to open whatever your chosen browser is. It would open it in-app every single time. Uh, when that happens, you're viewing the web within the context of TikTok's permissions. So they're able to modify the page. They can inject JavaScript. Um, They can actually sniff data out if they want to. It's all kind of this dangerous functionality that exists. Now, um, the, you know, where the option was not there to open the default browser, it means that TikTok controls your experience. Just like Safari or Chrome, they control your experience when you're using their browser. Um, but it also they were he was seeing specific JavaScript loaded into the app or loading into that in-app browser that allowed for uh, viewing of any clicks, any data that was inserted into the browser, and sending it off supposedly to a third party. Um, and so it, yeah, basically it's dangerous, right? Like I, you know, I know I'm going off here, Ken. Like, what is your take on this? Um, so, so yeah, a few things for one, um, why are people still using TikTok? Uh, open <laughs> question. No, I'm, I'm kind of joking. Kind of not really like I don't use TikTok for a reason. Um, so yeah, let's start there. Uh, and with their response, right. So points out that TikTok, you know, yeah, you, you they render, they render external non-first party TikTok sites within their app. Um, so that's one thing that immediately stands out. The second thing is that he calls out that they, uh, they have the ability to, uh, and they do, they log keystrokes and those are sent, sent off as telemetry. So in layman's terms, they're tracking and monitoring everything you type in while you're using the app. Um, that having been said, their response naturally was, oh, we use this for optimization and blah, 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 blah. It's not like we're monitoring you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, sure. That was their response. Uh, So yeah, problematic for sure on two fronts. One, uh, like I said, is is the, you know, loading of external websites that are non-first party, non-TikTok owned uh, properties essentially being rendered inside of their app within the in-app browser. And, and again, the second is the keystroke, lo- keystroke logging. The second thing that uh, came to mind was that if you use Safari, so if the if it's an iOS app using an in-browser in or in-app browser, um, it, and, it's using, it, and it's using Safari, there's a specific known safe. Uh, so if it uses SF Safari view controller, um, mm-hmm. It's you know known to be uh, safe, so and he also calls out. I think that uh, one company does this pretty well. I think it might have been Venmo. Yeah, Venmo. 
Sorry, my dog's barking because that's what she does. Um, <clears throat> that's I swear to God, she thinks that's her little job. Sit here and bark. Hold on one sec. All right, I gotta yell at the dog. Anyways, so yeah, um, there are safe ways to do this, but yeah, in the vast majority of cases, probably not doing this safely. Um, beyond all that, um, I think you were mentioning it, and I'm curious to hear more about this. Beyond the security side of all this, you said it's actually kind of painful to try and implement in uh, app browsers. So I'm curious yep. to hear more about your thoughts on that, or well, like more explanation of that. Yeah, so I, I most browsers are based on some sort of WebKit or WebView that's already like provided by the underlying operating system. So like WebKit is you know um, Apple's you know Apple's HTML renderer, right? Which is great for actually viewing HTML, but if I implement that in browser most of the time that means that I can't actually, um, I don't have all the browser functionality built into my application, right? Um, so as far as Hacker Tracker goes, I don't want to have to build a full-on browser um, just because I, I want to render some HTML content, right? Uh, and that's the problem that we usually get there is some sort of unnecessary functionality or un unneeded functionality right? So I open up a code of conduct page or something like that that's local. If it contains links to other places like, you know, the main website for this company or, you know, for Hacker Tracker or whatever, people click those links. By default, the HTML rendering is actually going to, you know, take you to that new location and show it within the context of that in-app browser, even though I may have not built the protections into it that you would traditionally expect. Things like caching, um, privacy protections, like cookie, you know, actually like looking at headers and maintaining the security of those. Um, if you don't actually like implement that, like the browsers have things like Chrome and Firefox and Safari and everything else, your, your in-app browser is basically deficient and the experience is not going to be the same as what what users expect from a browser, right? Um, and so that's what I'm getting at is there, there's a difference between what you're referencing there is like the SF Safari controller, right? Which you can use, which will give you like a Safari view into into the web as opposed to like the web view or the you know WebKit you know access, which is just HTML rendering, which does different things. Um, so the developers have to be fairly aware of what they're trying to accomplish, but there's a lot of unintended browsing that goes on. Um, you know, I've heard, I've heard horror stories actually from friends about, you know, uh, yeah, teenagers, young teenagers accessing content through in-app browsers because it didn't actually adhere to things like, uh, you know, typical controls that exist and proxies oh, that are put in place. I, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Right? Like, yeah. So, yeah. so it, like, people will use it as bypasses for controls built into iOS and Android as well, right? Like think about mm -hmm. trying to deploy devices like iOS or Android devices to a school and then maintaining some level of control on those devices. Um, using in-app browsers, you can actually, you know, 
bypass a lot of those controls. So it's just the experience is not as good. The security controls don't exist or they aren't maintained to the same level as what we expect. And then they can be used in nefarious ways. So there's all of this that's rolled into it. And now on top of that, we're applying this. Oh, and in addition, you know, the apps can inject JavaScript to actually, you know, view your interactions with the web. And it's just one of those things that probably needs to fall by the wayside, right? Like I, you know, I probably wouldn't suggest that anyone develop an in-app browser nowadays. Um, I'd push it out through the default. And, you know, if an application is using the in-app browser that you find a way to browse past that, copy paste. I know it's a pain, but at the same time, it probably gives you a bit better protections and better security than using what's built into those, those different applications. That was going to be my question is like, cert, uh, you know, that, that, that was actually my next question is like, would you then, and I know it's very context specific and there's, there's multiple factors that go into a decision like this, but would you be, you know, would, would this, is this something you might call it on a secure code review? You know, if you're doing a code review or even just like testing in general and you see this inside of an app, you know, is there, is there a point at which you say, Hey, I'm going to call this out as a finding the usage of in-app browsers. It, it, it definitely, it definitely is. Right. Like I, I'm not opposed to using like HTML rendering within applications. Right. And I want to be clear about that. It's something that we can use. It's like using Markdown or whatever else in the application to render text and content. Um, but I do call that out from an unnecessary functionality perspective, like always kind of like a best practice, um, because those apps aren't intended to be used as browsers. Uh, so the controls don't exist. I, I, so like when this popped up from TikTok, TikTok, this was not surprising to me from a, a development perspective, a mobile perspective, because we've been talking about it for years. Like that was one of my favorite things, like when probably five, six years ago, we're doing a lot of mobile app testing was to bring up, you know, uh, whatever the privacy policy. And all of a sudden I'm clicking through and I'm on Twitter or Facebook through the, you know, the apps or through the company's website, because they, you know, they link to the privacy policy. That's the fully rendered HTML page for, you know, their public website, at which point there's also links to Twitter and Instagram and everything else that's there. And you can just kind of click through and start to do other things. And all of a sudden you've loaded up a, a huge cache and you've created all this, you know, crazy stuff in app. It's not like a, it's not as malicious as what's going on with TikTok. And, and granted they'll claim it's not malicious, but, um, it's not as malicious as that because they're not intending for you to use that as an in-app browser, but it's still the functionality exists. So it would definitely get called out and you would see it on, you know, various reports that we've generated over the last 10 years. So. Interesting. Yeah. No, yep. I'm, I mean, I, it's been, you know, my, for me, it's been so long since I've done, you know, probably six years since I've really six or seven years since I've really done much with, mobile security uh in terms of you know doing full-on assessments so definitely something i was curious about um but it is uh yeah i think that i think it's an interesting call out um you know I, in terms of there being some gaps in how companies are implementing this and major companies too i mean these aren't small entities that were uh tested by uh felix or Kraus or however Felix Kraus. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, anything else you wanted to talk about there? Or, I mean, I guess the, the other thing to mention is that um, 
you can, this is a tool that's available that you can actually download. And, and, uh, so in appbrowser.com, I'll put the link in here. Uh, well, you don't even have to, you don't, yeah, you don't even have to download it, right? Like yeah, you just, just, down, if you just navigate yeah, to it. Navigate to that, right, to actually see what's going on within the browser. I, I mean, it'll be really useful. Actually, for us, when we're doing mobile apps, right, this is, it, it went onto my list of, oh, great, right? Like now I can, there's more to that in-app browser that we can take a look at to see what's mm-hmm. going on for these private, you know, private engagements that we have. So, Cool. Well, that, so that's TikTok. Um, stop using TikTok. Stop using in-app browsers. Yeah, I guess yeah. That, that would be my recommendation there. Right? Um, notice I, where you're at. Because I, I know we've all been tied by that or caught by that before is you're like, you know, you click on a link, whether it be Instagram or Twitter or whatever else. And, you know, you start to fill out, oh, this is something that I want to buy or this is something that I want to interact with. And you realize halfway through the process or after you've logged in that you're actually using, you're still using Twitter's built-in browser, Instagram's built-in browser, as opposed to Safari or Chrome. Um, those are the ones you probably would would be uh, safer using or more protected using. So just watch it, right? I guess is all I can really say. I did uh, paste in the link to the source code too. So you can actually see the source code for, uh, yeah, see what the source code is doing. So it, it shows sort of like um, exactly what in-app browser.com is doing when you navigate to it. Uh, it looks to be yeah, some JavaScript code here. Mm-hmm. Just going through it. It's a fairly, it's not even that much code, to be honest. It's like 500 lines of code or less, uh, yeah. essentially. It's not really too much to yeah. it. Um, it's probably just checking to see, you know, what what's actually injected into the page, right? Um, what he normally yes. expects versus what's actually there. And then you can do a comparison behind the scenes to see what else it is. Like if it is something that, you know, monitors typing or mouse clips, clicks or whatever else. Yep, pretty much just goes through a list of different things you could do with uh, elements and then tries it and then sees if it's possible. That's basically what it looks like. Sweet. Uh, cool. Awesome. Very simple. Very cool. I love yep. stuff like that. Yep. Simple stuff's always the best stuff, right? There um, was the question in our Slack about uh, the mobile. Um, well, the first question is, is there a mobile app testing methodology? Um, yes. Yeah. Definitely there is. is but that, and actually, that, that is one thing that the OWASP mobile app testing methodology guide, MSTG, I think is what it's called. Is, is pretty decent, um, right? Like our our own internal process is built around that. What we have found is it's incredibly difficult to actually test some of those items without having a jailbroken or a rooted device. Um, so we've, we've fallen back into more doing like source code review for the mobile applications. Yeah, Ken just linked it there. The mobile security testing guide is good and it'll talk through a lot of that. Um, when it comes to the mobile devices, it's all about like user interaction, communications, and then data storage, right? Like how data is actually protected on the device and whether it is. So being able to validate that something is protected properly um, becomes the challenge, right? So if I want to see, you know, how the, how keychain interaction is happening, I either need to have a jailbroken device 
of which there is currently not a jailbreak for iOS 15, which most devices are on, um, or I need to look at the source code. So, uh, you know, those, those are the two things that we've been running into. Um, in addition to that, right, like we, you know, you can, you can run mobile applications on like the M1 Max because it is an ARM processor. Um, that was useful for sideloading and other things. Apple's kind of done away with that. So you can get a development build of it, but it's a lot harder to actually test those um, production applications, applications that are in the App Store um, that have been built for the App Store in a, uh, in a test environment without, you know, you know, especially if they're targeting iOS 15, it's just going to, it's a difficult prospect. Not, not to get down on it too much, but yeah, check out the OS, OWASP MSTG. That's a, that's a good resource. It's a good place to start. Um, and if you have more questions, jump into Slack and we can, I can, we can have full on discussions about that and uh, the travails of iOS testing, because it's not a, it's not an easy thing. Cool. Um, let's see. We got about 10, 15 minutes left, Ken. Sweet. Um, where do you want to go? I, I, so I, I posted a link to Ken um, a couple of, you know, earlier today that was actually sent to me by a friend who is a physician of all things. Um, and so I, I like I, I did want to bring that up. Um, it's kind of a an, oh, an interesting is this the... story. Yeah. Biohacker is, bit. Yeah. So this yeah. is a, an article from Wired. Um, I'll paste the link. Okay. Oh, you already I did. did Never mind. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So basically that um, biohackers are encoding malware within, <laughs> within DNA, right? Within a physical strand of DNA. Um. And I'm trying to get more information on it, right? Like, but it looks like it, it almost looks like little bobby tables. I'm going to be honest, right? Like they're embedding malware <laughs> no. into this string or into into DNA, but it still has to be taken out of the DNA and processed by a computer to execute, right? So, like, oh, I'm embedding an attack in my DNA, which I then send to I guess ancestry or somebody like that. When they do the processing, it, you know, it's like a single tick and drop, you know, drop table, you know, I don't know, DNA or whatever it is. Um, so I mean, like, it's just another like input validation mechanism when it comes down to it, right? Yeah. So yeah. whether or not that, yeah, whether or not it can actually like be exploited is another is another question. Um, I mean, DNA is just a storage mechanism, right? Um, and in this it case, it's, it's a transfer mechanism. So I, I don't know how surprised I am by this. I just thought it was a novel use of, uh, you know, encoding as opposed to uh, something else. The result was a piece of attack software that could survive the translation from physical DNA to the digital format. And that's super interesting. So imagine... Mm -hmm overriding the sequencing of DNA such that when it's translated into digital format, this modification, man, that's cause like one of the things that you immediately think of is like, um, you know, we solve crimes with DNA. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an immediate uh, sort of practical attack surface that you could see 
I mean, this is, you know, why this is really interesting is like, I, I'm trying to think of there's a, so there's two books. Uh, the first was about, um, it was called, uh, oh gosh, what was it? Uh, Sapiens. I don't know if you've heard of Sapiens. I think I might, might've mentioned this before. Yep. Um, that same author wrote a follow-up book that I read and I don't remember the name of it, but it's uh, more pondering like the future state of humanity and where it's going. And ultimately, you know, one of the things that was uh, one of the big themes was our desire to modify um, our DNA. Like it's very much a thing, uh, whether that's to prevent health issues or for just enhancements. Um, you know, I don't think anybody's forgotten like, what is it, Gattaca, things like that, mm -hmm. um, where this is not, you know, it started off sci-fi, but like much like most sci-fi, it's it there's practical real world, you know, potential there. Right. So I, I don't really know what to say. I'm a little speechless because yes, these things are like, I do see a world. Uh, I think many people see a world in which DNA is modified in the future. Um, but I guess I hadn't started to think about how to, uh, how to hack that. Honestly, this is, this is something <laughs> interesting. Um, there's so much to unpack when you think about it. Yeah. Um, or to begin, right? Uh, could you? I mean, I could only imagine. I can only imagine um, the the uses here. Um, I yeah. I mean, some of the most more nefarious ones are modifying DNA before uh, a person's born, right? Yeah. Um, my goodness, the consequences of of a breach there would be catastrophic. Um, massive, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's interesting as they talk through it in the article, right? Like having to maintain the correct ratio of like the different pairings, like DNA pairings to make sure that like it didn't get discarded. Um, right. They had to rewrite it multiple times so that it would survive as actual DNA. Um, yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's, it, it's crazy the hoops that they had to jump through, like to make it to make it actually stick in this, in the scenario here. So it's, it, it's not like this is going to happen tomorrow, but at some level it becomes, yeah. It, like, yeah. It, it, it is that's possible. how most exploits start. You're right. Yep. It's like barely feasible. It's hard to do, but the research comes out years of iteration later. And when we say years, we don't mean like 10 or 15, like three to five and people yeah. have workable, valid exploits that are pretty easy to pull off. That's how it always starts off. It's always like, uh, well, it's really hard to, I mean, mo again, can't say always. A lot of times research starts off as very fringe and very like hard to actually accomplish. And then, yeah, it just doesn't take too long before people build upon the initial research and make it really, I mean, that's what James Kettle was talking about, you know, with request smuggling when he came on the podcast, he was like, yeah, I just, there was a lot of like folks that were kind of going at this their research was public they hadn't really weaponized it or made it really you know efficient or really practical and that's all he really kind of did right um and automated a bunch to like show how just how vulnerable the web was yep so anyways this just does, does this doesn't like strike me as all that different from any other research in that in that way yes well and that's i mean that's frightening though <laughs> Yeah, you dig into that article too, right? Like, so, and that's what they say, aside from writing the DNA attack code, 
the researcher also, researchers also did an audit of common DNA sequencing sequencing software and found three actual buffer overflows. Um, because that software is not, I mean, a lot of the software, like most uh, verticals, most, you know, software that's written, you know, with functionality in mind, it, you know, they're not written with security in mind because they don't take into account the, the, the attack surface that exists. So, uh, yeah, encoding a buffer overflow in DNA that targets specific commonly used DNA sequencing algorithms is definitely a possibility. Um, right. Yeah. And if you send it to the right lab, right. Like even like, yeah, it, it, this becomes like a threat model or a threat assessment that needs to be done at a lab level as far as, okay, where do we accept DNA samples from? How would we detect this? You know, how do we prevent this from happening? It's uh, like the attack surface is different. Um, and it's not like a, a threat that, has been considered up to this point. So hence the reason it was so interesting. Yeah. It's also, as I think about this, we're, we're thinking about this so much in the the form of threat and offensive and all of that, but another, I'm going to get out here on the fringe for a second. Imagine a world in which (laughs) there's regulation and oversight by authoritarian regimes around. Yeah. DNA, right. Like you literally have uh, just hypothetically, right? This is totally getting into the sci-fi fringe stuff here, but just to hypothetically imagine a world, a future world in which the government was to, uh, a government was to, you know, control and say like, uh, you can have children, but only, I mean, I think we see this already, only X amount and they have to have, uh, you know, government um, certified DNA sequencing, right? Otherwise, not okay. What not okay means, we won't go there. But, and what the ramifications are of not okay, we won't go there. Well, let's say that was the case. Something like this could be used in a positive way. Yeah. Right? Bypassing, um, yeah, bypassing government restrictions. I don't know. I'm getting out there, but. Well, uh, no, the, worth, and that's, that's worth what, hypothesizing, that's what, right? Yeah. And that's where I went to with like, oh, it's little Bobby tables, right? Like in DNA form, um, you know, you can use that to bypass certain things based on the controls that exist around DNA. Um, And if that's the case, then yeah, like exactly what, what you're going to, right? Like is, you know, as far as like whatever controls, whatever whatever stipulations we build into DNA, whether it is something like payment, like the cryptocurrency stuff there and just pointed out on the pod or on the, in the Slack channel, like, you know, anything along those lines can be, can be manipulated because of that attack surface and the way that user input is coming in, um, whether or not validation actually happens on that. But then again, right? Like since it is a, a natural sequence as well, who's to say that somebody doesn't have this already encoded into their DNA and we just don't know it. Right. Based on the millions of different pairs that are out there, the million, you know, um, it's hard to discount that because we haven't sequenced everyone's DNA that's out there to say that those conditions don't actually exist. Correct. Yeah. Man, (laughs) this is fascinating. This is actually, (laughs) yeah, the blockchain. 
put blockchain in your baby. <laughs> and yes, for Jason uh, and for uh, Aaron, yeah, Homo Deus was the the name of that follow on book that I was referring to. Really great book. Really fun to just kind of think about where humanity is going. Uh, very f fascinating book, especially because it's based off of prior research, right? So it's it's predicting some potential outcomes based off of historical information. Mm -hmm. So it's rooted somewhat there in facts and science. So that's nice. Cool, man. Somewhat wild. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it, it could it could be not just an offensive thing, but it could be a preemptively like a keep DNA open source kind of thing. Uh, or, you know, yeah. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I don't think we've, we've explored that space near enough. I, I mean, I know a lot of people are doing research into it and they're, you know, they're pushing that direction. Um, you know, as far as like 23 and me and, you know, I mean, but this is part of the reason that I have concerns with uh, like private companies actually owning or like having DNA sequences um, because you don't know where that's going, uh, you know, as far as like how how well they protect that, what those markers actually show, um, what's built into them. It would be fascinating from a data science perspective and a data research, security research perspective to have access to that. But what are the implications of that as we move forward? Because if we start to use that for things like cryptocurrency, for minting, you know, various, you know, uh, whatever NFTs or like, you know, proving identity, all of a sudden you've already given that identity information. You've given, you know, you've given that to a company and paid for the, you know, paid for that privilege. Not that we don't do that all the time with, you know, TikTok, right? But at the same time, right, like the, something that you can't necessarily change. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I like I have all sorts of concerns when it comes to like physical like DNA and that representation. I, yeah. Your great yeah. great grandchildren are going to be NFTs. Yeah. That's basically what you're saying. <laughs> you're you're going to mint your own kids. <laughs> <laughs> Web three. No, I don't know. <laughs> Web three is uh, going great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you rug pull your kids. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And you're done. <laughs> and you're done. Yeah. Good times. Good times. Oh wow. Well, that was uh, interesting. That, that was that was a good discussion. That was interesting. I yeah, we didn't know where that one was going to go, so that was fun. Um, how do you? How does one know how to how to go with something like that? You know, it's so off the off the wall. But uh, yeah. yeah. Anyways, sweet. Is there yeah anything else there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say like we have stuff with GraphQL testing and a few other. We things, do, but we you know we, we have gone you know. I yeah we we've probably pushed towards the end of it today. Um, yeah. Uh, like, yeah. we'll post some other articles in, in the Slack channel over the course of this week. Um, we do have some interesting NATSEC or national security discussions that are upcoming um, based on some books that we've been reading. Um, we'll have Stefan back on in not too long. We also have, I know we have some other guests that we want to bring on as well, Ken, and we've just, um, just got to email them. Yeah. Just got to email and actually set that up. Um, 
but if there is, if there are people that are in, or interesting topics that you would like us to discuss, please, you know, send us an email, jump in Slack, mention it. Um, there's a lot that's going on. Uh, there's a lot that came out of DEF CON and Black Hat and interesting research that I know we haven't touched on yet. So I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure we're going to get to a lot of that over the next, over the course of the next month to two months. Um, the, the things that start to affect the industry, the wider, you know, AppSec, ProdSec industry and what we see on a day-to-day basis. Um, so if, if you have something that you found interesting from Black Hat or DEF CON, hop in and let us know. Uh, we'll pick it up and, and discuss, or we can just discuss in the Slack channel as well, depending on where you want to go with it. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yes. Any, any final thoughts today, Ken, you know, on, you know, changing your DNA to target I don't know, <laughs> your bank, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, well, dang, there is, I mean, now, yeah, now you're making me think, uh, uh, just about how biometric controls might be, surp- uh, bypassed in the future using these exploits as well. So that's your fault for making me think more <laughs> anyways. Yeah. Uh, no, no more final thoughts. That was probably the only one. So I'm just happy to be back. Happy to be kind of feeling, uh, I mean, I'll be traveling again um, next week, but after the podcast. So um, yeah, cool. so we'll still have the ability to do na- normal time next Tuesday. The Tuesday after that, not so much. I'll be out in Vegas uh, again, but for a different reason. In fact, if anybody is going to vegas between september 1st and 8th let me know be curious uh if you're going to be there uh and you're listening um maybe we can meet up uh yeah that's all i have sweet all right and i will not be in vegas that week i have had my (laughs) for a while um but if you do happen to be in uh you know in the mountain west region let us know and if you would like swag, we do have t-shirts to send out. I've got a pile. I know I, a bunch of people have asked. And if you have asked, your name is on the list. I've, you know, it's been separated out. We just haven't sent them out yet. Um, but we'll be doing that now that you know, Vegas has settled. So if you would like a t-shirt or stickers or whatever, jump into Slack and hit me up. And as long as you provide a physical address, we can send it along. Cool. All right. Well, um, thanks everybody for joining today. We will... Yeah, we'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. All right.